leading organizations with intentionality and purpose is complex work. And dedicated leaders work tirelessly each and every day to build impactful cultures of collaboration. But effective collaboration is difficult and messy. The good news is you don't have to do it alone. Join the Jigsaw Learning Team for Leading Collaborative Response, sharing insights for leaders committed to establishing, refining, and deepening collaborative response in their organization. Welcome back to another episode of Leading Collaborative Response. I get the privilege to be joined once again by Curtis Hewson, lead learner and co-founder of Jigsaw Learning. Hi, Curtis. Hey, Jen. How's it going today? Well, I see you have brought back the 20s from Mexico. Unfortunately, it's on the minus side here. <laughs> uh, yeah, we had a little bit of a week to rest and recharge once again, but it was a little bit of a rude awakening coming back to minus 20 with a significant windshield um, when we came back into Alberta, Canada. So the joys of uh, coming back to that winter, winter wonderland. Yes. Well, you got to escape from winter for a little bit. And yeah, I did. know that when you go on holidays, you are an avid reader. You take your books down to the beach and do your thing. Is there anything exciting that you read while you were gone? Yeah, I think I dug through about 12 books and a number of articles in that while uh, we were gone for just the week there. Uh, yeah, reading. I had a chance to check out Daniel Pink's new book on understanding the power of regret, which was super interesting to take a look at that. And then read a few different books around the idea of sharing messages and and uh, extending reach and really how can we then connect that when engaging as leaders to share clear messages and really ensure that the messages we want to be able to be heard are are being met with our, our best intentions. So lots of flags and notes in books. And we spent a lot of time on a plane consolidating all of those. So we wouldn't forget it by the time the busyness of the everyday set right back in. Well, I know how important messaging is on the part of our team as well. And having been in the education system, there really is importance in not leaving things open to interpretation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting to read some of the psychology behind that. And then there was also some really important understandings that I think can impact collaborative team meetings and our understanding of those of really talking about the power of ensuring tight structures and processes, which actually the psychology says allows creativity and innovation to open up because we're not having to spend our our cognitive manpower on ensuring all of the logistics and nuances of of meeting as a team. I thought that was really interesting insights. Well, I know that we're really, collaborative structures and processes is the big puzzle piece with respect to collaborative response. Well, <laughs> so the other thing I read, Jen, which was really interesting too, which I think will equate to the topic we're gonna to talk about today is something known as the Ikea effect. Have you ever heard of that in any no. of your travels? No. Okay, so the IKEA effect was a proven study that people valued the furniture that they had from IKEA more than other furniture distributors or or resellers. And do you want to guess why that was? It's not necessarily because the couches are any comfier or the desks are any better made. Is it because they had to make it themselves? It's because you had to make it yourself. And that small little effort of I had to take it from a box to a completed item 
has people put more value to it. And so it's that understanding that when we are involved in the creation, um, or as we talk about the co-creation, how much deeper investment and value that we find out or that we have for something. It, I think the Ikea effect fits it very well. It was an interesting uh, consideration, especially related to what we're going to talk about around constructing and then continually refining a continuum of supports. Yes. Sorry, it just popped into my head. We did a podcast on putting the pieces together with Jigsaw Learning with Nick Moskalek, who described something similar around make the pancakes. Yeah, so that's right. That link in the in the window as well for people who want to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I love the way he talked about how they tried to simplify it, make it easy for, for people to make those pancakes. But in the end, um, taking away some of the effort and energy actually devalued what people felt. And it's, it's again, what they saw in that Ikea effect. So before we get into bringing people into the continuum supports, can we yeah. talk a little bit about our previous episode? We ended with the idea that the continuum supports is never done. Yeah. You want to elaborate on that for our listeners today? Yeah, and I think the uh, little title that we put was good news. This thing is never done, which may not feel like good news, but really it's trying to reinforce that idea that the creation of a continuum within our school, within our district, it's never a one-time event. It's not a, we check that off of our collaborative response checklist. Now, what's our next one thing to do? It's a constant evolution. It's really becomes that documented record of our organizational learning and articulation of practices, what it is that we do for instruction that we know is impacting learning and ultimately success. And it's never done. As our learning individually and collectively grows, so does our continuum. And in some areas, it's going to expand and fill in gaps. In others, we're going to start pruning away the things that we're finding out are not as impactful as we thought, or that research is actually saying, this doesn't quite have the same amount of meaning or impact. So it's interesting too, when we think about that continual evolution, we know that a continuum of supports, when it's directed to a priority area in a school, by its very nature may mean that we have multiple continuums that over time get built for us. So the idea that, <clears throat> We might be at a good place with our literacy continuum, but now we're really starting to refine a continuum that's supporting behavior within our classrooms. And, you know, now we need to refine that. Oh, and it's been a little while since we looked at our numeracy continuum. Well, that's going to be a work that another team is going to take on. So that idea of that it's never done is really where that power of the process and then the document, the document itself, which we've affectionately called the menu or the placemat before, it's it's just constantly growing and evolving with us as we do the same for a school. So when we talk about that menu or that document, way back when that the visual that went with that was a pyramid. And we talked about a pyramid yeah. of dimensions. But Absolutely. over time, as we've learned, it's shifted into a continuum of supports. Can you talk a little bit about that shift before we delve into the importance of tier one in those menus? Yeah, I think so. And I think really at the beginning, it was paying homage to the great work uh, around professional learning communities and the emerging work. This is about mid-2000s time around response to intervention, where a pyramid of intervention was the common recognizable term at that point. It made sense. The idea of 
a pyramid of interventions was sound. But what we found over time through working with multiple schools and districts is that it wasn't quite defining the work the way it was being engaged within the schools we were working in and within our own as well. So one of the things that we found out is when we talk about what do we do to support students, interventions, of course, are important, but there's a lot of things that we do that if we refer to it as an intervention, we actually cloud our understanding of what truly is an intervention. If an intervention is truly to be there for impact, it should be happening in an individual or small group setting. It should be focused on teaching or building a particular skill that we're honing in on. And the person that's providing that intervention needs to be trained and be doing it with fidelity. Well, when you put that description to a lot of the things that were on people's, again, at that time, pyramid of interventions, there was a lot of things that we could do to support students that didn't necessarily fit that description. So being able to understand that we have interventions, we have strategies, we have accommodations, and then at tier one, we have universal best practice that we'll get to. All of that really becomes an overarching way that we support our student. All of these are supports. And then this idea of a continuum started to emerge. The pyramid made sense when we were thinking about tiering students. And when we think about some of the earliest uh, definitions of that provided through a lot of the response to intervention literature, to which we, again, um, were deeply influenced by within this collaborative response work, when you tier the students, of course, we want the large majority of students having success with our basic tier one practices. We then want some students who are going to need what in the literature had been defined as tier two, some of those targeted interventions, and then a very small amount uh, that were at that tier three or the individualized or intensive interventions. But that was when we were tiering students. And you'd often see the 85, 10, 5 percent that were laid out for those three tiers or or different variations of it. But what we found over time is that there was more power in tiering the supports, especially when we started to think about what is it that this particular child needs at this point in time. I love our uh, colleague Shelley Moore, who talks about the idea that we, a student shouldn't need to fail in order to move to the next tier. And by fail, I don't mean remediation. I mean struggle, uh, not have success. We should be able to, at any point in time, say, right now, this student needs this type of support for their success, and we're moving along that continuum. So I think that was really important to understand. And then that idea of a pyramid shape didn't make sense when you're tiering the supports. As we work through, it became very clear that the traditional tier one needed to be broken apart. So we looked at a four-tier continuum, and it wasn't about adding one more tier on top. It was about taking what had traditionally been referred to as tier one and breaking it down to what are the non-negotiables that we should see across every classroom. The big rocks that I know we're going to get into here today on how do we go about doing that. When we go at tier one at the big rocks, we're essentially saying these are things we agree we must do for every student in every classroom. In time, we want to narrow and refine 
So we often show a visual of uh, a teardrop-like shape where it narrows at the base at tier one, but tier two, which are the supports provided still within the classroom or directed by the classroom teacher, but are for some students, some of the time, it depends on context. This particular tier two strategy might work here, but not here. Um, it becomes a huge menu of intervention strategies and accommodations that we could consider within the classroom before we ever look at tier three, which then are the supports provided by someone other than the classroom teacher, but still within the school. And tier four become those supports on which we're reliant for external expertise, whether that's outside agencies or support from divisional sources. So what this does is it creates a bulge that happens at tier two. So utilizing a pyramid visual is actually misleading when you tier the supports. What we're trying to do in time is clearly identify what is tier one, and that initiates a really deep conversation about what are the things we agree are the highest impact school-wide practices that we agree to uphold and reinforce across our school or even potentially across our district if we can reach that uh, depth of conversation. So I, I hope that provides a bit of a long-winded explanation, Jen, around how we saw that shift from a pyramid interventions to a continuum of supports and how when we think about refining tier one, the pyramid graphic doesn't make sense when you tier the supports. Yeah, you got right in there for me because I was going to ask about the model with collaborative response is around four tiers of support. So I really appreciate you mm. clarifying that it's not about adding one more at the top. It really is about clarifying what's happening in the classroom for students. Yeah, and really making the central hub of our conversation about what's happening in the classroom. And that's not about putting additional pressure um, or uh, teachers need to own what's happening before anyone else steps in. Not at all. It's about trying to honor the practices in our school and say, we're doing good things. What are they? Name them. And then we can use that continuum as an anchor for our conversations. For me to say, Jen, have we tried doing this within your classroom? And for you to be able to say, oh, I haven't, but I'm not sure how to do that. Can I get some help? So again, it's how everything connects because our collaborative structures and processes then are helping to build the trust and the vulnerability so that when we're accessing our continuums, it's safe for me to say, I'm not sure how to do that, but I'd like some help. Think about the title of this episode, right? We're articulating big rocks. We are yeah. refining tier one supports. How do we take those steps in order to define and refine that particular tier so that it's not what you described as that laundry list? <laughs> Jen, I know you're very well versed in this, but for our listeners out there, we always talk about the idea that when you're starting a continuum of supports, start with the understanding that we are doing good things in this school. In every classroom, we have strengths that are really, really evident. What are they? Name them. Let's name all the things that we're doing for success for our students. Okay. And when we name those, and you've been in a room where it's, it means post-it notes, post-it all over the place, and then we start organizing them into tiers. Um, Again, it starts with the idea of let's honor and empower what it is that we're doing within our school. And it starts with a laundry list. And you've seen this, there ends up being 
multitudes of things happening that teachers say, I do this for all students within my classroom. So we start with a laundry list. It's usually that big, big collection. And of course, we see the most things happening at tier one and two. And then usually there's less that we have available in our school um, beyond the classroom necessarily. And then it's always a good idea once you have that first iteration, walk away from it. Write it down, document it, and walk away. And it will mean that at tier one, you have a laundry list. You've got a huge collection of all the things that teachers are saying, this is what I do for all kids within my class. Unrefined. But I think it's important to walk away and let people reflect, think about what it is that they have uh, completed. But we often hear leaders say, oh boy, that first iteration doesn't feel like we've got high impact strategies and responses documented yet. And no, we usually don't. Um, that first pass is usually about just getting things out and then we want to refine. And so one of the ways that we want to refine then is in time, starting to narrow tier one from that laundry list down to the agreed upon big rocks or non-negotiables. So some ways that I've seen uh, schools do this, or I've worked with schools to be able to do this as well, is start with the individuals. Being able to say to classroom teachers, take a look at that tier one list and reflect upon what are the top 10 that you do in your classroom. So let's say, for instance, we've created a numeracy continuum. I want to take a look at that and just for myself indicate these are the 10 things that I do that I know have impact for students and I have evidence of that. Then we usually have people come together in small groups or maybe even partners to start and consolidate. Come together on an agreements of five to 10 that you feel are important. We might do that a couple of times as you know partners then come into groups and consolidate further. And then from that, we want to give it to a small working group, um, some representatives of our leaderships and teachers that can take it away and further refine and consolidate what the groups have said. Maybe theme them together and then bring it back to staff, get the feedback and then take it back. So it becomes that really iterative cycle or process of a feedback loop where we engage and then get feedback from staff, then engage. And it's through those multiple loops and iterations that we eventually get to the place of um. Here are the big rocks. And usually it's anywhere from five to 10 within any particular continuum that we agree are really essential or critical within our school. So I think about Northern Gateway that we are both intimately familiar with. When they did this from a divisional perspective, it took a year to get to that first iteration where they broke down five domains of quality pedagogy that they agree would they would see from every classroom K to 12, and then spent time defining what does that look like. But it was multiple loops from a working group back to staff for feedback, then back to the working group. And through that looping, then being able to infuse when is the place where we hold up what we are starting to draft out up against research? And do we have research to support the emerging big rocks that we have in place? So it's not a simple process. It's not something that happens on one PD day, but it over time, it's absolutely essential that we get down at tier one to the big rocks. And then people often say, does that mean that the things that were tier one when there was the big list are now off? And no, typically it means, no, we've moved them to tier two. 
there are things that we know people are doing and having impact, but unless we're willing to say thou must do these, then they're going to go to tier two as considerations of something that we could do. So an example I often use in uh, in schools is a teacher saying, well, I use a student dictionary, a, a dictionary that they have in their desk where they write down keywords that uh, for, for spelling and some definitions. So it's a little visual dictionary. Every student has that. And for another teacher saying, well, I've got a couple of students that I do that for that need that help, but I don't have it for all my students. So unless we're willing to say everyone must do this for every student, it's a, a practice that we would put in tier two, even though in your classroom, Jen, you're utilizing it as a tier one, which is why, again, we don't put typically straight lines between tiers because there's there's movement, there's gradients. But when we talk about the tier one big rocks across the school, they must be the things that we all agree we will do for every student in every classroom. So in that process of identifying all the big rocks, we have them, they're out there. How do we ensure they're lived in classrooms? And I know like one of the things that comes to mind is in the process um, of having done this, the idea of LLI, daily five, et cetera, yeah. et cetera we pulled away from the programs and said, we want to ensure small group reading happens in all our classes. Yeah. But what so, are some of the things that you've seen in the process of living out some of those big rocks? Yeah, so I think for our listeners uh, here, a really key consideration is remember, you're always going to be refining. So don't get locked into, well, we've typed it out. It's now on our continuum we can't change. No, it's going to shift and adjust over time. Something that you thought was a big rock 10 years ago is not going to be 10 years from now. So uh, be be comfortable that it's going to continue to adjust. Um, and again, I, I use that word refine. So Jen, when you talk about the programs, and I often hear, you know, we've invested so much in this particular program across all our classrooms, so it's going to be a tier one practice. And the problem with putting programs in place, like you know, is what happens if a teacher strays away because they've adapted it somewhat in, in their way and they found ways to enhance or build upon, or in time, maybe we find a program that's superior to something that we're using. So you nailed it of being able to say, what's the key why underneath it? So when you think about something like Daily Five, where read to self, is one of the key components within it, we should ask why. And so maybe at tier one, what goes is opportunities for students to engage daily with authentic literature. Now, how you do that in your room might look different than mine, but we all agree that's critically important to be putting in place. So now once we have those in place, I think it's really important that as a staff team, we start to discuss, so what does that look like in your room? What does it look like in my room? Or sometimes even the antithesis of what does it not look like? If we agreed that in our relationship continuum, that we will have um, daily interactions with our students as a core, um, a core big rock, then we should be talking about in my classroom, here's how I do it. In your classroom, here's how you do it. An example of something that would not be supportive of that is um, singling out two students a day only that you're going to make an, a certain connection with. 
Um, so trying to really think through what it is that we agree it looks like is really important. And then from an administrative lens, we want to be able to look for those things when we're out in our walkthroughs, looking for evidence of that and integrating it into some of our walkthrough processes or in time for teachers to be able to come in and watch. And, you know, one of the big rocks we've said is that students have access to quality literature in every classroom. Well, let's go in and take a look on a staff day. Let's go do a little tour of classrooms and see how everyone's built a classroom library that accomplishes that that big rock. So I think that ongoing conversation, I've often seen schools that make it, you know, five minutes, let's take one of our big rocks on a staff meeting day, find a partner, talk about what it looks like in your classroom. And I think within schools, I've seen them put public displays, you know, here are the, the big rocks. I think again about Northern Gateway, in many of their schools, they have it publicly displayed. Here's our five domains of quality ped pedagogy that we are all aspiring to. And then I think being able to continue to add resources to each one of those. So that's something we've tried to do in a number of schools is if we've said this is a big rock, well, let's let's link a video that shows what it looks like. Let's link a Google Drive um, that we can store samples and resources in so that when somebody does reach the point of, I know it's a big rock, but I don't know how to do it or I don't feel like I'm doing it well, we have supports there to be able to really ensure that, as you say, those big rocks are being lived within our school and they're not just words on a page. Well, I think that aligns with, I know Lorna has talked about in various opportunities that I've had to chat with her about the presence of the continuum of supports and making it public. Yeah. And so having those big rocks publicly, it just reinforces confidence in the integrity of the, of the professional practice of teachers because mm -hmm. parents know what to expect and kids know as, as they learn to read and see they know what they're going to have in their classroom that's going to you know welcome them and be there for them so but Jen let's let's think about where we started this from a Mexico perspective of the Ikea effect the fact that teachers have been part of the creation the discussion the ownership of this makes it that much more valuable and real rather than somebody swooped in and said here's the six things everyone should do in their classroom which may disregard all, all the energy and efforts that i'm already putting in um again that, that ikea effect was a great way to describe what we found around um the building of a continuum of supports is it has to be a shared process and one that's truly honoring what do we already do? And, and in time, there we do have the opportunity to start plucking off things that we don't find research-backed or we don't find over a long term are having as great an impact. That's okay. But we have to have a starting place. So, Curtis, you have segued greatly into the next question we want to ask. This question is brought to you by WeCollab. Designed by educators for educators, this comprehensive digital system aligns with the foundational components of collaborative response. Moving from conversation to action, WeCollab empowers classrooms, schools, and systems to provide the very best response for each and every child by informing action-based decision-making with data and evidence supporting student success.
So we understand that staff has turnover. Teachers come, teachers go. Yeah. So you've had one group of staff who has worked continually over a year or two years, building up this continuum and refining the tier one supports. And now we have a new teacher come into the school. How do we ensure the buy-in for that teacher? And what happens if they don't agree with what's been articulated yeah. as a big rock? So I think... Um, again, this comes down to why it's so important to co-create that it's not my big rocks that I've set forth as a school leader. These are things that we as a school community have agreed upon. So I, I think it's when we're developing and refining, always having that opportunity for feedback, for consensus, to be able to say, is there anything that's being listed that you do not feel is critical in your classroom? And let's hear why. What's the reasoning behind that? Um, I think also being able to ensure that are the big rocks universal enough that they can be applied. And in some um, priority areas, it may be that we define our big rocks at an elementary level, and then we've got slightly modified big rocks at a junior high, senior high. That's that's entirely possible, especially when it comes to something uh, potentially like literacy or numeracy. So I think having that consensus as we go along and the opportunity for feedback, and again, the the trust and vulnerability for somebody to say, I don't believe that is a big rock and let me tell you why. So we, we know these are messy, messy, messy conversations, but they're critical to what it is that we're doing to support students and reflect upon our practice on an ongoing basis. So now onboarding, one of the things I'd want to ensure is as a new teacher's coming in, have I made this part of my hiring process? When I'm interviewing, I, I want to be able to make it very clear. These are big rocks that we've established in this priority area. What would these look like in your classroom? Do you agree that these would be big rocks? Provide me evidence of how you've built these into your classroom. I'd want to make it crystal clear for somebody coming in. These are expectations that we hold of one another. And if they don't fit you, it might indicate you're not a great fit for our, our building or our staff team. And I, again, that's not a comment on anyone um, as a teacher or professional practice, but it's making sure that we have the right fit for what we feel is big rocks within our school. And then again, I think when we start to have teachers that are questioning when new teachers come on, it's a great chance to go back and say, okay, let's revisit what, again, what does this look like? Let's bring people into that process. And if someone were not to agree over time, or we found out through the process, someone was quiet because the trust wasn't quite there for us yet, and then reaches a place of, I need you to know, I don't necessarily agree. I think one of the things we want to be able to do then is first, talk through it. With, with people to say, okay, well, what does this big rock actually mean? And is there evidence or particular portions of this that you have within your classroom? I have seen situations where a teacher doesn't necessarily see themselves in one of the non-negotiables, even though they do it really well in their, their classroom. They just may not be conscious of what it is that they're doing or even the languaging that they're utilizing around that. And then I think, again, that's where the importance of backing things by research. It's a lot um, 
I think it's more powerful when we can say this is a big rock because here's the evidence that we've gathered for it rather than just saying we had six people that agreed this is really important and another person coming in and saying yeah but where's the evidence or background that says it is truly important so I, I think it's critical in those that we do so much preemptive work so that we don't have to get to that really difficult conversation of I'm sorry but these are what we've agreed upon as as important uh, I, I think we always want to be able to see this as a joint and team effort. And how do we bring each one of our team members into that conversation to see themselves within those big rocks? Curtis, I think in your response, you have basically reiterated the message from the last time as well of it's good news. Your continuum of supports is never done because that constant review and iteration and conversation and you continue to build that buy-in over time where you are strategically and intentionally reviewing those big rocks with staff. Well, and I think what it also does, Jen, is there's a real power when I have to articulate my practice and then more importantly, reflect upon it and hold it up against um, something that we've put as as potentially aspirational for what we're trying to accomplish in our rooms. So I think it, again, it's just creating a mechanism for us to do the most critical work that we can in a school, which is really reflecting on what works for kids, what works best for kids and how do we replicate it over and over and over again. And I think you've hit to the core of why teachers go into classrooms because they want to do things that work for kids to help them be successful. Absolutely. Yeah, we all want to see success through our the experiences of, of those learners in front of us. Well, thank you again for making the time to be with us today. I know that you are a busy man and there is lots going on at this time of year in terms of people wanting to get in and get your support set up in their schools. So thank you for being here. Thanks, Jen. And I just want to thank the people who are out there as listeners that are engaging in this work and understanding that it is messy. It's messy, difficult work, I can tell you firsthand. It can sometimes open cans of worms that make life a little bit stressful or opens up conversations that life was a little more comfortable when we weren't necessarily having to discuss what's happening in our classrooms. But it's, again, a way that we just continue to build our expertise, our practice, and our trust with one another of we're all good teachers, but how can every one of us benefit from being seen as an expert and a learner? I can always grow. I can always look at my next evolution in my my practice. And I think things like the development of a continuum of supports reinforce that over and over and over again. That's an excellent message to end on because the reinforcing and empowerment that comes from articulating practice, I think is huge in building the capacity of staff teams. Couldn't agree more, Jen. Ensuring success for all students is a moral imperative for all schools, but it takes a highly coordinated framework of structures and processes to maximize the collective capacity of the team. In collaborative response, three foundational components that transform how we respond to the needs of learners, we share an organizational mindset that involves fundamental shifts for schools and districts.
Numerous school and district examples, as well as access to a large number of resources, are provided within the text and in the accompanying companion website. Join the growing number of schools using collaborative response to ensure high levels of success for students and staff, stemming from the essential belief that every child deserves a team. Discussing the continuum of supports is always exciting for me because I recognize that the articulation of teacher practice is so empowering. Having been involved in those post-it note activities and seeing people so excited to talk about what they're doing in their classrooms. So that tier one, that refinement of best practices, universal instruction, non-negotiables, big rocks, however you want to frame that. Curtis talks about the, that process and it is so important in ensuring that every student is being given the strongest foundation possible. So to come up with a few key learnings from the conversation with Curtis, the first one I want to focus on is the importance of co-creation. Identifying the things together as a staff. Curtis talked about doing it at a school. He talked about doing it from a division level and that iterative process of getting feedback. The IKEA effect of having people involved in creating and refining the development of that tier one non-negotiable list of things and recognizing that these are the things that we agree are going to happen for all our students in all our classrooms in our school or across our district. The second point is the universality of those big rocks. The idea of tier one is to identify the universal practices, the things we are going to do every day in every classroom for every student. This is not intended to be a list of a hundred things, but rather in that process of refining and really getting at the heart of what's important in the classroom so that it can be implemented in different contexts. So if I'm in an elementary school, the universality of what we've put into place, for example, small group reading, what that looks like, the stamina involved, the number of students involved, the focus of that small group reading can be applied across a grade one classroom and in a grade four classroom and a grade six classroom. The third important part of this is connecting those universal practices to research. And while doing so may be an uncomfortable conversation to begin with, because maybe we've never had the opportunity to connect what we're doing as high impact based on research. And so that reflection may be, may be a little bit of discomfort, but it will also lift up and empower people as we get to the research and the examples of why we believe this is important and what is happening for classrooms. And what we may find is as we refine based on what research is showing is best practice, we can actually take things away and reduce that laundry list so that what's expected of each other what we expect of ourselves for kids is actually pretty manageable. 
So as you go through the process of refining your tier one continuum supports, the conversations are what is important. The clarity that you can build in coming up with practices that are sustainable and easily passed on to the next teacher and the next teacher and the next teacher because they are connected to research so that they identify and buy into it if they come in. If they weren't part of that initial creation, they're a part of the process of reviewing and refining. What does this look like in the classroom? What's an example of how I implement this? And so that everyone is on the same page to do what it is we want to do as educators, and that is to best serve our students. For more on collaborative response, visit jigsawlearning.ca or join the JL Insider to receive access to newly added resources and content. Make sure to follow us on social media. Subscribe to the podcast and the Jigsaw Learning YouTube channel to access past and upcoming episodes. Join us again to continue to build your own capacity in leading collaborative response in your context.